Welcome to MI Cynic, the podcast with a license to inform. This is your host, Thomas Brancato. In today's episode, Mr. Justin Bronk and I finish our conversation regarding the future of British combat aviation. Previously, we discussed the roles of helicopters within the Royal Air Force, possible effects of the integrated review, and current policy shifts. I want to return to the subject of Russia and slightly more symmetric warfare in, in a moment. Uh, but I think for now it's good uh, to be able to understand that this shift that's taking place is, as you say, not really so much of a shift, uh, but a reorientation towards uh, our commitments and our realistic uh, defence targets and uh, being aware of what the UK's biggest risks are being able to address those. Um, but for now, I want to go back down to the smaller scale for a second and talk about the risk posed to combat aviation itself from a technical standpoint. And more specifically, I wanted to ask you what the dangers are to uh, combat helicopters, specifically from, and I think this was mentioned in uh, your report, Maximising Combat Aviation Capabilities in the UK, the dangers from AAA cannons, manpads, RPGs. I'm sure there are many more that are missing there. Uh, and, and my question towards that is whether the thinking now uh, towards the new line of helicopters that we'll be, we'll be having coming in is to minimise uh, the pre-existing risk, the risk that we know about, the risk that, that you've talked about in your report, is it down to something that's new technologically within the, the helicopters themselves, uh, mechanically speaking, or perhaps software, I'm not sure? Or is it down to a command and doctrinal difference uh, that's taking place within the fleets themselves? Uh, what is the modern thinking regarding that? And how can we minimise risk, those risks most effectively? Most of the, the, so both attack and support helicopter um, survivability is, is addressed by aircrew in a sort of layered uh, approach. So, you know, someone will talk about it as the, the survivability onion. Um, essentially, the, the first kind of level is, is don't be seen. Um, so ideally, stay low, use terrain, um, go at night, uh, use bad weather if you can. Um, Attack aviation generally in particular is, is pretty tolerant of bad weather. So is support aviation compared to a lot of other assets, particularly compared to UAVs. Um, so try not to be seen for a start. Stay very low. Um, so try not to be seen by radar. Try not to be seen by troops and, and you know, incidental threats by being at, at night in bad weather. If you are seen, try not to be hit. It's the second layer. Um, so uh, keep a very good lookout, um, both in terms of systems so the ability to for example know very very quickly if something has locked you up is looking at you with a radar know what it is where it is um and also if it then for example uh, not just sees you but actually tries to lock you up um to guide a weapon for example uh knowing that that's happening um so typically with a tone and also an instrument uh indication uh now that also not just require that doesn't just require the, the hardware so a very good radar warning receiver um, but also very advanced uh, mission data file uh, programming capabilities so that you can incorporate, first of all, you need a, a military intelligence function so that you can gather the latest um, waveforms, should we say, uh, that enemy systems might be using uh, and know what they are and what they're capable of. And then uh, a mission data file programming capability to translate that into a software update that you then push out to the fleet that essentially tells that hardware what it's what it's detecting and, and how to kind of present that to the crew. 
Um, so there's the the don't get hit bit um, that also includes you know chaff and flare and you know other laser laser well, directed infrared countermeasures. Um, so essentially, uh, laser laser um, capability to try and spoof um, incoming heat seekers uh, away. Um, so that's all part of the countermeasures suite. Um, which also deals with one of the biggest threats to, to low flying aviation, at least potentially, which is man pads. So man, man portable air defense systems, um, think shoulder fired um, heat seeking missiles. Uh, the, the, the most modern ones, uh, so that we would say Gen 3 or Gen 4, um, uh, Russian Iglo or Verba being good examples of three and four respectively, or, or the, the various Chinese models that are now appearing a lot in the Middle East, particularly in Syria. Um, they are, have at least multispectral uh, seekers so they can look not just in the infrared but also for example in the ultraviolet so they're harder to decoy away they, they have a, a, a more kind of composite picture of, of what they're looking at uh, they have much faster response times than older systems which took a few seconds a good few seconds to warm up the battery and get a lock um, so if you only saw a helicopter coming for about 20 seconds as it appeared over you know in a valley and then disappeared around the other you, with an old system you struggle to get a shot off these new ones are generally much much faster um, and the Chinese ones also now have imaging seekers, so they're uh, they're actually registering an image, not just the heat source, um, which again makes them much harder to decoy away um, by you know traditional things like flares. Um, the thing is with the man pad because they're far, they're so fast uh, and they they have they're, they're passive seeking, so they don't give the the crew in the helicopter a, a, a an active indication because they're not emitting any energy that could be detected. Um, the, the first the crew will know is that when the missile is fired uh, at them, now the, the aircraft will detect that heat signature of the missile plume coming out and will then under, activate its own countermeasures programs, whether that be DIRCM or uh, chaff, flare, whatever it is. Um, but of course, the crew generally will only know the missile, will only kind of register that the missile has been fired after it's already either been decoyed or hit. So in that sense, there is a significant reliance on the, on the hardware and the software, um, on the systems. But of course, the way you fly, the way you operate, the way you plan your routes, particularly with, with uh, what intelligence you have, the best intelligence you have about where enemy forces are likely to be encountered is also hugely important to that not being seen bit. Uh, so then not being seen, not being hit. The third layer is if you are hit, um, remain flyable. So uh, for example, Apache is, is, is you know, has a reputation of being very tough. Um, it's not actually as armored as people often kind of make out that it's covered in armor kind of thing. It's actually not. Um, but there are armored areas so that the crew are protected by armor plates. Um, there's armor around the cockpit and armored glass um, to try and keep the crew safe. Um, and also there's things like there's a big armor plate between the engines uh, and between the engines and the fuel tanks. Um, the idea being that it's trying to build redundancy in, i.e. you can take a hit uh, from something, uh, even relatively high caliber anti-aircraft or, or, or a man pad uh, or an RPG burst. And odds are it shouldn't take the whole aircraft down. It should remain flyable. It might be a mission kill. You might well have to have to try and find somewhere friendly to land quite quickly. Um, but the aim is to, to, to be able to take a few hits and, and then still get, still keep flying. The fourth layer then is if you, if you, uh, rendered non, if you are hit and you are rendered non-airworthy, uh, then it's to uh, be able to emergency land rather than crash. Um, so having an ability to, for example, auto-rotate down if you lose engine power, 
uh, or to go down with the tail rotors taken out. I've spoken to an Apache pilot, in particular a British Apache pilot, who landed a, an Apache without the tail rotor uh, in Afghanistan. It can be done, which to my mind is slightly physics bending, but anyway. Um, so there's then that. And then the final layer is if you do crash uh, to make it non-fatal. So for example, having crumple zones in the uh, crumple uh, uh, kind of design into the, the undercarriage uh, and having crash proof, you know, crash resistant seats so that the impact of uh, the aircraft hitting the ground is minimized in terms of the shock that translates through to the bodies of the crew. So you have this survivability onion um, is, is how they would describe it. Don't get hit. So don't get seen. If you do get seen, don't get hit. If you do get hit, don't get downed. If you do get downed, don't crash. If you do crash, don't die. <laughs> right. And that makes perfect uh, perfect sense to me. Um, and hopefully we've studied all, all those three tactics and perfected them and uh, done the best we can to uh, to make as safe as possible the lives of, of our pilots, of course. And, um, and I hope that uh, the integrated review and that some of the defense planning that we have currently in the reorganization is geared towards making sure we've got those three things right. Um, but it sounds to me from your response that we are taking them seriously and that we are doing everything we can to modernize the fleet in, in that regard. Well, uh, this is actually leads to another question that I've had, and uh, which I often ask myself when I hear when I when I read through uh, articles, specialist articles, military reviews, whatever it is, that we're talking very specifically about, say, this segment of the RAF or this segment of the the army or this segment of the navy. And uh, we're doing great power competition, so we're, we're hypothesizing scenarios against whatever it be, Russia, China. At what point do we bake in the realization that, hang on, if we're talking about openly armed warfare between Russia, the UK, or China, the UK, I mean, we're talking about nu nuclear warfare, right? I mean, I don't know. I don't think it would take long before the country say, you know, forget about sending tanks, just send, it's the first one that sends the bomb. So uh, this is this is something, I, you know, to what extent does modernizing combat aviation to gear itself towards a hypothetical scenario against Russia, what is the ceiling of of those rationalizations, if, if that makes any sense? So... The, one of the uh, interesting things about nuclear weapons is that they uh, are essentially useless in a military context, provided your opponent also has nuclear weapons. Um, and you know the, the, the doctrine of massive retaliation, uh, i.e., uh, under Eisenhower particularly, the, the idea of winding down spending on conventional forces and just prioritizing nuclear weapons, uh, was 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 discovered to be extremely inflexible because essentially. If your only credible response to a small armed incursion, let's say, of a kilometre into Estonia is to nuke Moscow, no one is going to believe that you'll do that. And equally, uh, I, I don't think there's any real belief anywhere that if, for example, uh, you know, a Russian bit of you know, armed incursion into, let's say, a bit, of, you know, a bit on the border of, of Latvia or Lithuania, uh, that if it was repulsed by force, uh, i.e. Article 5 did its job and NATO massed forces and then pushed them out, but didn't go into Russian territory, I don't think there's anyone who seriously believes that Moscow would use nuclear weapons in that context. Now, of course, they would threaten to do so um, because one of the tools that Russia has, diplomatically speaking, is it is much more willing to talk about and threaten, or at least implicitly threaten, the use of nuclear weapons than Western states. 
uh, and it is an intimidating thing to do. But of course, the use of nuclear weapons, A, has not been done uh, since 1945 in terms of actual combat use, and the taboo around it would be enormous to break it. Also, Russia is actually very vulnerable to nuclear attack itself because its logistics centers, even if you were to just go for counter force targets, so you're not going for counter value targeting, you're not going for cities. Um, although, of course, if you took out Moscow and St. Petersburg, that's most of Russia's governing capacity, just the same as anybody else, you know, taking out any other countries, um, you know, capital cities. Of course, Russians have a very, very um, defensive mindset around the vulnerability of their own country. Mm. Um, but uh, essentially, the problem with, with focusing on nuclear weapons is then if your only step between peace and war is no conflict at all and then nuclear annihilation, it's very it's it's comparatively easy for countries to call that bluff because no one's going to believe that, for example, Russia is going to commit suicide over a kilometer of Estonia. Equally, the Russians don't believe that we will commit national suicide over a kilometer of Estonia either. So if we re if we rely solely on nuclear deterrence, it's not credible either. Um, so essentially, and, and this comes down to a lot of the grey zone sort of or, or hybrid war um, discussions as well. If you if you talk about thresholds of war, uh, so, you know, so say conflict below the threat, you know, uh, aggression under the threshold of armed conflict, the threshold of armed conflict is determined by the defender. So it's not some kind of objective thing that exists that, you know, say Russia and China have discovered these new clever tactics to undertake, you know, territory grabs and, and, and you know, disruptive activities in a way that we can't respond to. It's that we're choosing not to respond to them for a whole host of reasons, but one of them being that we are conventionally deterred to a large degree. Um, conventional deterrence matters. And, and again, deterrence ultimately is in the mind of your opponent. So a lot of the discussions we have in the West are about, you know, well, we've got world beating capability this, or it's because of the, we have the best people and we empower them and all this stuff, which is all good messaging. And there's reasons for it, particularly around retention and armed forces, you know, satisfaction, trying to make sure that people feel valued in their jobs and therefore do a good job. I'm not saying it's not important, but we, we sometimes confuse that sort of justificatory talk, which is primarily for a domestic audience. With deterrence, I mean, the reason troops and, and politicians be scared to fight the Russians and the Chinese has nothing to do with them having the, the best trained people or getting the best out of them. In fact, one of the reasons we're scared to fight them is because they demonstrably don't give a, excuse my language, don't give a shit about their people. They're willing to lose them if, if the diplomatic stakes are there. And, and that's very scary. That contributes to deterrence. Um, so, you know, I, I do think we need to be a bit more realistic about what the choices are that are governing uh, what we would see as hostile states' behavior. And actually, where you impose costs and how you impose costs is, roughly speaking, how you have to deal with them. The, one of the easy modern examples is if you look at uh, Turkey, which has a very interesting relationship with both the NATO alliance that it's part of, although it's a very problematic member um, these days, and also with Russia, that it's also buying defense equipment from and has a, a, a very complex relationship with. Now, Russian aircraft based in Syria, going out of Latakia, um, um air base, as part of their, their um, efforts to, to defend, very successful efforts to save the Assad regime, uh, were consistently violating a small uh, sort of intruding bit of Turkish airspace that, because of the shape of the border, there's a bit of Turkish airspace that kind of goes down into uh, Syria, because there's a bit of the Turkish border that goes down into Syria. And the Russians were routinely flying across it. So they were violating NATO airspace and violating Turkish airspace. And they did this several hundred times over, over many months. Um, and the Turks kept protesting 
uh, and the Russians took no notice. And so eventually the Turks decided that was enough was enough and they shot one down. Um, now, I remember being in a, in a, in a conference at the time with the, the head of the US Army Air Force, sorry, the US Air Force in, in uh, Europe and Africa up on stage and asking a question going, given Turkey's just shot down a Russian aircraft at the kind of, <laughs> everybody kind of, you know, tensed up and the people, all the phones came out and everything. And it, there was this sort of feeling that, oh, Turkey's been incredibly rash here. This is such an irresponsible thing to do. But actually, if you look at the Russian reaction, yes, they complained. Of course, they complained. One of their pilots died. They had to complain. They lost an aircraft. But in terms of actual consequences, what happened was the airspace violations stopped. And within six months, the Russians were set in, back in talks with the Turks to sell them their latest air defense system. In other words, the actual response from Moscow was, OK, that's a red line that you actually mean. We will stop pushing there. We'll find other ways to, to put pressure on. But that one you actually mean. OK. Equally, they, they were using their Wagner mercenary group um, in Syria to take territory, particularly oil fields, past the, the, the agreed deconfliction line on the Euphrates. Um, and the American, and they, they, they were basically assaulting an area where there was a US Special Forces base. So they were coming under fire from Russian artillery and, and vehicles and people coming across. And so the US uh, Special Forces commander got on the hotline with the Russians, the deconfliction line, and said, are these your troops? The Russian, Russian commander in Syria said, no, they're not our troops. He said, are you sure they're not your troops? Because we're about to kill them. <laughs> and the, the Russian commander said, no, 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 they're, they're definitely not our troops. And the US said, okay then. And they called in huge amounts of air power and they killed about 300 Russians. Now, the fact that the Russians knew that the Americans knew that they were Russians, and the fact that the Russian public then knew, and it was, you know, it was, it was, it was really uncomfortable for Putin because Putin's then in this position where the bluff has been called, the implausible deniability that is a sort of off-ramp for us not doing things. It's, it's a sort of excuse because we're deterred to just not face the problem. Is gone because suddenly someone's called the bluff and actually it's reversed then. So Putin is then in a position where he can't really go out and you know respond angrily and try and put counter sanctions or whatever on the Americans for killing Russians because they were not. They were explicitly not Russian troops. They were a mercenary group that was not affiliated with the Russian armed forces. But of course, the Russian people know that what's actually happened is the Americans have just killed a load of Russians, and there's no response. So suddenly, Putin was in a really interesting and difficult political position. So my point, I suppose, is getting down to all of this with deterrence. Is it's about actually imposing costs and decisions on countries. It's not about slogans. And while narratives matter. That thing about this idea that future wars will all be hybrid or difficult or sit set under the threshold of armed conflict, it only sits at that threshold because we choose to put it there as the defender. What states do when they do things like Turkey shooting down the Russian jet or the US hitting the Wagner group in Syria is they lower that threshold and thus constrain the room, the, the room and the ability of states to accomplish goals, aggressive goals below that threshold. It's, it's a very dynamic and responsive thing. And nuclear weapons are, are almost, you know, if you look at nuclear weapons, you, see, you, know, you look at the Russians, what do they actually want? A, a world that's reduced, or even parts of the world that's reduced to cinders, has no interest for the Russians. Um, you know, if you, if you talk to Russian uh, exiles, for example, one of the things they'll say is, one of the things, the notable things that unites the Russian ruling class, by which they mean the oligarchs uh, and the, the politicians, is that they all see their children's future and keep their money in London. Now, 
in that scenario, <laughs> do you really want a nuclear war with the West if your actual goal is the same power? No, but you need to you need to show your your people that you are keeping the pressure up that you're fighting a good fight. So, one thing that can be said relating to the example that you've just mentioned is how scary is this, the realization that perhaps too many of the military leaders in Russia, uh, they behave as though uh, their own man, whether they be supposedly mercenary companies or not, are almost treated as expendable pawns in a wider chess game. That's being played out in Europe, in the Middle East, wherever. And I think this is where we differ quite starkly. Uh, between here in the United Kingdom and in Russia and the way that we treat our armed forces and the way we see our personnel and in our mission to save as many lives as possible, not only ours, but those around the world. Um, and so this is, brings me to the next question that I have, uh, which more specifically relates to global Britain, which I think is something that's inherently tied to the integrated review. And that has a political motive uh, as well as uh, a real doctrinal uh, sort of something we can point to now textually and say, you know, this is global Britain. This is the result of um, uh, the prime ministers being called this integrated review. There was a, f a few months spent uh, drawing this up. And, uh, and this is what global Britain now looks like. And I wonder if this sits rather uncomfortably with putting investments in markedly offensive capabilities. Now, I want to be careful here because I'm not sure if the reorganization that's happening in combat aviation is necessarily offensive, and I'm not sure how you can define that. So I'll, I'll let you answer that in a second, Justin. But I suppose what I want to get to in my question is whether a global Britain can also become an offensive Britain, a Britain that can step in and quickly deploy its forces in many um, areas of operations around the world and whether this carrot and stick policy um, sort of saying to the world yes we now we want to trade everywhere and we want to be global and free from the shackles of the European Union but at the same time uh, you know we want to reserve the capability to be a top-notch uh, threat if, if you ever um, you know get out of line or whatever it is um, and, I, and I, you know, I was looking into that part of the integrated review and I was a bit struck by that. I thought um, framing our defense capabilities as defensive capabilities has always sat a bit more comfortably with the public and with other democracies. Does the integrated review change this? Are we adopting a tone that is markedly more interventionistic in nature? And when we talk about great power competition so openly, uh, are we daring China and Russia? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the uh, British people and, and I tend to have a, a perception that we are an inherently defensive country. And I think historically, it's hard to find a more offensive country than Britain. Um, we have uh, conducted what most countries, particularly on the receiving end, would have seen as offensive military activity against most countries on Earth um, at one point or another. Um, and indeed has continued to be one of the most expeditionary minded of modern militaries, particularly within NATO alongside France um, and the United States. Uh, 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 expeditionarily minded, often actually really meaning offensively minded, at least in terms of projecting force into areas where, uh, for example, in Libya, where part of the, part of the population were very, were very pleased, but of course, the, 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 as Russia or China would see it, the state 
um, which they view as much more important than the rights of the people in it, was very much not welcoming of us. So, you know, I, I think there's there's overtly quite an offensive angle to a lot of um, even recent British foreign policy. Um, one thing I would say on, on in terms of specific capabilities, like like if we're looking at combat aviation, is that defining offensive and defensive uh, systems is, I would say, very problematic uh, in the sort of modern military paradigm, uh, primarily because ranges uh, and long-range uh, sensors, so, so the ability to detect and then cue in long-range fires uh, accurately against long-range targets, uh, are sufficiently advanced in most modern militaries around the world that in order to defend yourself effectively, so for example, if you wanted to be able to defensively reinforce NATO territory, so alliance territory, purely defensive, in large parts of Poland and in the entire Baltic state region, you would be under threat from an ability, you, you would be under serious threat from a range of nominally defensive systems. So for example, long range air defense systems, S-400, S-300, V-4, um, anti-ship missiles, in particular Bastion um, P, as well as, uh, yeah, so, I mean, then you then you get into offensive missiles that are typically classed as offensive, like uh, Iskander, but um, essentially a lot of defensive systems like anti-ship missile batteries and uh, and long-range air-to-air missiles, which never have to leave Russian territory, so never have to cross any borders, in order to have an enormously uh, offensive effect as the Ukrainians found out uh, in, in Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, although, of course, at various points in the conflict, there were regular Russian uh, armored units uh, and, and, and infantry units and, and a lot of Spetsnaz operating within Ukraine. There was also a huge amount of damage done to Ukrainian forces by Russian long-range rocket artillery in particular, uh, and uh, the, the loss of Ukrainian ability to fly in their own airspace, particularly with helicopters and, and transport aircraft, um, by the, the the presence of long-range surface-to-air missile systems on Russian on the Russian side of the border, so nominally defensive systems can have hugely offensive uh, capabilities because of their range. And equally, in order to defensively reinforce your own territory, so take that Eastern European example of trying to reinforce the Baltic states or parts of Eastern Poland, uh, or in the the US case, looking at the Pacific. Um, you know, for example, if you wanted to try and get forces in to reinforce, let's say, the Japanese trying to reinforce the Senkakus or you know, getting forces towards Taiwan to provide uh, you know, reinforcement there, you actually would have to take what many would class as offensive actions to take out those long-range systems on hostile soil. So you're, you're taking the fight to hostile soil. In, in the Russian case, it would be particularly in Kaliningrad, their enclave. Um, but also on the Russian side of the border, on, on, on the eastern side of the Baltic states, potentially, in order to secure access to your own territory. Um, equally, you know, I think attack aviation is is generally seen as offensive um, as as weapon systems go. You know, it, it has the ability to maneuver large amounts of anti tank firepower forward um, quite unpredictably. Um, and so, you know, most people would see that as an offensive thing. But of course, the doctrinal uh, use for it, uh, British Army, I think, would see as primarily defensive. It is to blunt enemy armored thrusts before they hit uh, the you know British and NATO front line. So yes, they'd be trying to penetrate into enemy-held territory to do so. But you can argue then, is that a defensive or an offensive? I would say 
it's an offensive capability being used for a defensive goal. Um, so yeah, I think th the range of weapon systems today, uh, particularly long-range um, surface-to-air and surface-to-surface uh, um, -surface fires, mean that actually to take defensive actions in most of the world's flashpoints, both sides would resort to strikes on each other's territory, which historically we would tend to class as offensive. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult dynamic. The last set of questions uh, I've got for you, Justin, is again related to the IR and uh, a concept of global Britain. One of the things that I struggle with myself is something that I wanted to ask you, because we've mentioned before what I like to call the <laughs> having your cake and eating it too, but I've, there's a formal term for it, the uh, full spectrum approach. Is this symptomatic of, when we talk about a full spectrum approach, are we talking about whether the, the ambitions set forth in the IR 2021 are too grandiose in nature, too, the, the theatre of operations is too wide, and we're simply trying to do too much with too little. Is that at the nature of what's going on? And can we blame it on saying there's not enough funding or the ambitions are too great for what is essentially an island in, in Europe? Uh, or can we talk about other limitations at play? Or, in your opinion, is the IR just about right? Is it is it just about the right balance between what the UK can realistically do, what it can politically do, and what it can militaristically do? Have we struck the right balance? And in especially in as far as our RAF goes, the aviation wing of the military goes, um, is it sitting in the right place? And if not, how much of that is influenced by what you might call a nostalgia of the days whereby we did have a larger control physically of the world and uh, and bases from which uh, and allies and whatever it was that we could call upon, uh, perhaps a role that is more fulfilled by the United States today. Uh, does that spill over into the calculations or uh, not? I'll let you tackle that as best as you can. Good questions. Uh, I mean, at the top level, um, you could, I think, reasonably characterize most of the policies of this current government and indeed the previous Conservative government as well, uh, as driven by a refusal to accept British limitations in terms of scale, scope, alliance structures and geography. Um, <laughs> you know, that's partly ideological, it's a deeply anti-European Union um, sentiment, desire to quote-unquote break free. Um, and also just, you know, there is, as you say, an element of nostalgia. Well, you know, this is Britain that quote unquote won the Second World War. Well, interesting, argue it was a hugely, hugely important player, but of course, the United States and the Soviet Union uh, did a lot of the work. And Britain in the Second World War, of course, was not alone. It was a global empire with access to nearly a quarter of the world's population and about a third of the world's natural resources. So, um, you know, it was hardly a small, uh, small island. Um, <laughs> And, and, you know, there's no way of, of you know, approaching that sort of uh, capability today. Um, notably because most of the, what was, uh, all of what was the empire is now self-governing. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think the, the integrated review, I don't think it makes things any worse than they were. And, and in some ways adds at least some uh, very welcome policy prioritization in terms of at least stating explicitly that the Euro-Atlantic area, and particularly NATO, is the core focus for defence planning. Um, that helps, but there's certainly still a huge level of over-ambition compared to the funding uh, available. Um, 
and the kind of the ambition to be a full spectrum military or America at ten percent as used to be equipped um, essentially hasn't been viable for 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 a long time. And what it actually means is that British forces tend to uh, be pretty you know to fall short, particularly in enablers, so combat support, uh, logistics, maintenance, ammunition, all of the sort of stuff that actually makes a military work beyond the kind of shiny kit up front. Um, in most areas, uh, and we, we rely hugely on particularly American support whenever we deploy uh, anything serious. Now, there are niche areas of, of exquisite British capability where we genuinely are excellent um, and, and can do a lot of things relatively uh, organically, um, fast air being one of them. Uh, the Typhoon Force has been well-resourced and generally performs excellently, uh, particularly in the air superiority role uh, alongside the, the F-22s, although the move to more to more standard multi-role operations uh, with the withdrawal of the tornado will, will slowly dilute that expertise just because the pilots will have to spend a lot of time doing stuff that isn't their superiority. So their relative proficiency at that kind of task that they used to be counted on very heavily by the, the US for alongside the Raptors will, will diminish. Um, and and you know, submarine uh, operations, another big area where Britain you know, is genuinely uh, still a, a you know, world 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 uh, class player. Um, special forces. Uh, so you know there are areas where the UK absolutely plays uh, at the top level. But in terms of the, the sort of you know, there's still a nominal, for example, ambition to field the divisional warfighting capability with three division in uh, in in NATO. I mean, nobody believes that the British Army can can generate a, an actual division. Uh, two brigades, yeah, but then even then would struggle um, in terms of the vehicles and and the ammunition supplies. So, you know, th there is a huge gap between what the UK says it's going to do and what it actually can do. Um, and I think for for a, quite a while, um, particularly post uh, 2010, moving towards 2015, uh, allies were willing to give the UK the benefit of the doubt that they you know they're taking a capability holiday because of the financial crisis, but they'll build back up. Now there's there is one detects in, in conversations with with American and European uh, colleagues that there is a lot more skepticism about you know the gap between UK rhetoric on armed forces capability and actual reality. Um, stand fast the fact that they generally respect uh, you know, they generally have a high level of respect for British armed forces personnel um, that when they do appear they're generally well trained uh, well capable they, they're good allies um, but the overall kind of balance of capability is, is way, way more ambitious than the funding needs. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and that, But that's not a pro just a problem with the integrated review. That's uh, an enduring problem. A wider, uh, more structural problem. With, with the UK's um, view on defence. We basically aren't willing to spend enough to to afford what we what we claim we want. Perhaps that's what I should tie to the podcast, Deb, because it seems like this keeps coming back at, at, as an issue, is um, we just do not have the funding that matches the ambition. And uh, we'll, we'll see how that is, is resolved politically, either to the one side or to the other. But um, I lied to you, Justin, because actually I have one final, final question, uh, just based on uh, your, your last answer there. And I promise this will be the last one. Uh, but I was thinking in my head while you were giving that answer, is playing the devil's advocate perhaps but on the on the other hand can we make the argument that quote unquote inflating uh, the size the scope and certainly the ambition of our uh, combat aviation of the RAF and perhaps the military more broadly will actually lead to a safer prison is is there a value in in what the government is doing and in overselling and overhyping our armed forces and saying no actually let's let's aim for something better than the top 
So I, there are two slightly pithy things I would say in response to that. The first is to look at what happened in Helmand. Um, we said we would take on, we, we really fought to get allocated responsibility as, na- as a nation with an ISAF for the biggest, most difficult uh, province in, Helmand, uh, in Afghanistan. And the US had to come and bail us out because we messed it up catastrophically by undercommitting resources required. Um, you know, not criticizing remotely the heroism of all the British troops who went out there, but we were massively under undercommitted. So uh, we massively undercommitted the forces that would have been you know, close to adequate for Helmand. And the second one is, you know, this constant theme of the British forces. You know, there's this romantic view among some that you know Britain likes to be a, a country that can punch above its weight. In boxing, if you punch above your weight, you tend to get tired and then you get knocked out. Anyway, I'll probably stop there. That's a good line to end our wonderful podcast and uh, certainly will give plenty to think about for our audiences. Justin, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show and the interview that we've done concerning combat aviation in Britain. I think we've touched on many different topics within combat aviation and uh, we venture a little bit outside of combat aviation itself and into uh, perhaps strategic planning or uh, the vision of Britain in the future. It's been an absolutely delight to have you on on the show and um, all I can say is that I am sure my audiences and myself would uh, would very much like to have you on board for uh, for a second episode. Well, my pleasure and uh, take care. And that concludes the final part of my interview with Mr. Justin Bronk, touching on key aspects of what the future holds for British combat aviation, relations with Russia, and the meaning of a global Britain in terms of defence spending. And I hope you'll stay with us for the next episodes that we've got planned. Please remember to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and more. And of course, to check out our website for the latest episodes. Thank you so much, and have a great day. (music) 